Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. The vast majority, as they say, of children um, can learn to read with the right instructional supports. And uh, it's absolutely an appropriate mission for schools. In fact, one might argue the primary mission for schools is to develop um, citizens and to be a, a citizen of this country who can actively participate in the democratic process. Um, being able to read and write is so fundamental. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. Today, we're returning to our discussion about the state of reading and reading instruction. Tangie and I forged our friendship through our shared interest in the topic, and we were pushed to start this conversation by the fact that the organization that represents state superintendents and commissioners has issued a call to its members to focus on reading instruction. This is highly unusual for the Council of Chief State School Officers and demonstrates that reading instruction is being recognized for the critical issue it is. If you recall, three weeks ago, we talked with reading researcher Alfred Tatum to get a handle on where we as a nation are. We had a wonderful, complex conversation that is difficult to sum up quickly, but suffice it to say that Dr. Tatum is not satisfied with either the state of the nation's reading or, for that matter, the state of reading research. You should definitely go listen if you haven't. But today we're talking with two more people who are dissatisfied with the state of reading instruction in this country, and they've taken that dissatisfaction into the courts. They say that children have the right to learn how to read and that states have the obligation to teach them how. And two courts have agreed with them, a federal court in Michigan and a state court in California. In settlements, both states have agreed to spend more on reading instruction in very low-performing schools. These cases are in many ways very big deals, and I'm thrilled to say we have two of the exact right people to talk about them. Mark Rosenbaum was the lead attorney in both cases. He is director of Public Counsel Opportunity Under Law, which he founded after decades of working with the ACLU as a civil rights attorney. Welcome, Mr. Rosenbaum. Well, thanks for having me. I'm interested in having this conversation with you all. And Nell Duke is professor at the University of Michigan, whose research focuses on early literacy development, particularly among children living in poverty. She and her team provided key analyses that were used in the California case. Welcome, Dr. Duke. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I have to say I had a hard time boiling down their intros to be so short. Both have very long resumes, and I will provide links in the show notes. Thank you both for talking with Tangie and me. Uh, Mark Rosenbaum, let's start with the basics. You've gotten two courts to agree that students have a legal right to learn how to read. Can you explain why this is a big deal? Well, it's a big deal for a number of reasons, um, although one has to wonder why it took till 2020 and 2021 to establish a basic right for children to learn how to read so that they could read to learn. I think, first of all, it's a big deal because the community won 
Um, the lawsuit was part of a community struggle. It was a community struggle in Detroit, for example, that went back to 1963 when Dr. King marched with um, Reverend Franklin and gave a preview of the I Had a Dream speech and talked about education as a basic right. And long before that, too, um, communities have struggled. One of the organizers we worked with um, was a contemporary of Rosa Parks. Um, and, and when we got to Detroit, we saw students and family members and teachers and groups like EdTrust in the middle of a fight just so the kids could get a basic education. It's also a big deal because one of the Supreme Court, the United States Supreme Court's most infamous decisions is the San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez case, a 1973 decision about 50 years ago, where the Supreme Court said that education is not a fundamental right. That set back the movement for educational justice for decades. It meant that the federal courts would be closed to those who sought to get even a basic education, even a minimal education, even a literacy education through the federal court system. What our case did was to say that the 14th Amendment was in fact part and parcel of a movement to say that literacy, basic literacy, would in fact be a fundamental right. Judge Clay's decision in the case, which was the first of its kind in the country, talked about the history of education in this country and specifically learning how to read and said that learning how to read was the foundation for all rights. And, and when you think about that, you don't have to be a constitutional scholar to understand that lacking the capacity to read undermines what the Constitution was supposed to be all about, an opportunity to better one's circumstances, an opportunity to participate in the political process. And contrary-wise, if there was an effort, as there was in Detroit, led by Betsy DeVos and a Republican legislature and governor, to, to disenfranchise a group, to subordinate a group, what more efficient way to do it than to deny children, children particularly from low-income groups and children of color, the opportunity to better themselves by educating themselves and learning how to read. It was the perfect strategy to attempt to subordinate a group. So it's a very big deal and the case is already being utilized in other courts across the country as authority to say that, that states can no longer say to kids, you, you, you're disposable, you don't get the opportunity to learn how to read. Well, I saw that uh, the, there's a uh, bill in the Michigan legislature to provide a huge amount of money, uh, I think $194 million. $94 million. And $94 that was, million. Sorry. That was part of the settlement of the case that um, Governor Whitmer would vigorously support that. And, and that's going to happen already. Millions of dollars have gone to kids. And I think also, Karen, um, what's really important is that literacy has become part of the vocabulary. That's what EdTrust has been fighting for. It's what what um, individuals like Nell Duke have been fighting for. And it's certainly what the community groups have been fighting for. And so I'm, I'm proud of the fact that the case has supported the community struggle to say that literacy is a basic right and, and we just can't put it in some back room and ignore it. Well, and I should say that Ed Trust was a, uh, did file an amicus brief in the Michigan case that I'm kind of proud of. We learned so much from Amber and Brian at Ed Trust. This was that's what I meant earlier. This is a fight that we were, if anything, late in joining, and Ed Trust was was part of leading the charge for for um for this effort. 
Well, Dr. Duke, I'm just going to, I'll ask this in as um, contrariness a, a way as possible. I mean, it's all very well to say that students have a right to read, but you're an educator talking with educators. How reasonable is it to ask schools to teach every child to read? Well, it's, it's pretty reasonable, Karen, in the sense that we know a whole lot from research about how to teach children to read and with the right supports in place, the vast majority of children can learn to read. I'll acknowledge that there are a few cases, a small percentage of cases, for example, um, children born with hydrocephaly, um, that's a condition in which in most cases, children are not going to learn to read. So there certainly are exceptions. But um, the, the vast majority, as I say, of children um, can learn to read with the right instructional supports. And uh, it's absolutely an appropriate mission for schools. In fact, one might argue the primary mission for schools is to develop um, citizens and to be a, a citizen of this country who can actively participate in the democratic process. Um, being able to read and write is so fundamental. If we picture in our minds the last ballot we had to complete and we imagine trying uh, to, to be an engaged and informed citizen and make that vote without the ability to read. Um, if we think about the fact that we value free speech both orally and in writing and that we expect uh, people to be able to, for example, you know, submit an op-ed to, to a, a news source and so forth. I mean, those um, the ability to do that really depends on the ability to read and write. So um, citizenship and literacy are, are intertwined in very fundamental ways. And it's the responsibility of schools to make sure that we develop citizens who have those abilities. It seems to me that, and Tanji and I rant about this all the time. I mean, um, the question is, how, how did we get off kilter? I mean, Right from the beginning of schools, they were expected to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic, right? Like, why is it such a huge deal to teach all kids to read now? That was their, that was the purpose of schools to a large extent, as you say. How did, how did, how did we get off, off track there? Uh, maybe you, maybe you don't want to do a history of educa of reading education, <laughs> but, but it just it as much as I know, I still am baffled by that. Well, I think the first thing to understand is it's not as though at one point in our history we were teaching everyone to read and then we got off track. We have never, as a nation, never um, ensured literacy for our populace. In in, in fact. You know, there's been active work, and this is related to another lawsuit uh, that Mark and his team are involved in. I mean, there's there's been active uh, efforts for throughout our nation's history to prevent certain children and groups from learning to read. And that prevention hasn't been random. That that prevention has been sociodemographic. Um, for example, very deliberate efforts to make sure that enslaved peoples do not learn how to read and very deliberate efforts to ensure that even post-enslavement that there were um, denials of the right to learn to read by race. Um, there've also been gender-based denials, socioeconomic denials. So we've never taught all kids to read, to be clear. And actually, statistically, we're doing better now than at any point in our history. The problem is that we're not where we, we need to be. We're not where we aspire to be. And it, we're not where our, it's our responsibility to be. 
I, I think that's such an important point to emphasize that we were never actually on kilter. Uh, it used to be a crime to teach a, a child who was enslaved to know how to read. As Judge Clay pointed out in his decision in our case, in the Detroit case, uh, the Ku Klux Klan used to go after teachers of black children. Um, we had literacy tests. In the Detroit case, um, the government, the state of Michigan, took the position that, that the reason that children um, were struggling wasn't because they went to schools without teachers, literally without teachers, that they went to schools without textbooks, literally without textbooks, that their schools were buildings where the temperatures would vary from below freezing to above 80, 90, even 100 degrees, where, where individuals were passing out, where in one classroom, an eighth grade was a teacher because there weren't adults, um, where um, teachers themselves had to purchase the materials for the classroom. The state of Michigan took the position that the real issue was, quote, the intellectual limitations of the children. And as we said earlier, the, the strategy was, to, in fact, to attempt to subordinate groups to, for all the reasons Nell was talking about, to keep certain groups out of the political process so they wouldn't have a say, so they wouldn't be able to become political leaders and become part of saying what a democracy was all about. It, it got off kilter the same time democracy got off kilter and when we decided that there were certain groups and individuals. And that's why, again, as Judge Clay said, and as the, uh, the, the movement in Detroit was all about, it's not just a, a movement for educational justice, it's a movement for racial justice and justice on behalf of all individuals, including those who are don't have the income and the affluence um, to, um, to have a say-so in society. So you've said that this um, case can't be used as a precedent without, I mean, there, without getting too like into legal weeds, um, you're also hoping it serves as a model. So can you, can you kind of parse that out just a little bit? Yes, and it's a really important part of the story. We won in the Sixth Circuit a two-to-one decision um, uh, with the, with an opinion by Judge Clay that I've been doing this a long time, and I regard it as a historic decision um, coming some 70 years, close to 70 years after Brown versus Board of Education. The response by the Republican legislature in Michigan and by Republican attorney generals throughout the United States, six of them throughout the United States, was to go to the Sixth Circuit, which included six Republican appointees in addition to six Trump appointees, and said, overturn this decision instantly. What, what these individuals said was, and, and it's so meaningful what they said, it's too costly. It's too costly to make sure that every child has a basic right. And that goes to your first question. And that is the importance of this matter is that access to literacy is a right. It's not something that has to be implored. It's not something that has to be begged for. It's not something that has to be requested. It is part of the birthright of every child in this country. And what the Republican legislature said was, we can't take that that we're, we, we can't afford that and we don't want that to happen. When that happened, uh, the Sixth Circuit, as it, as it was set up, the appellate court said that we wanna hear the case again, even though the case had been settled. 
once it was settled, you settled it with the, with the state. You you reached a settlement with the governor. State. That's correct, and that meant that the case could never be overturned. And that meant that the sort of things that we're talking about, the $94 million and the, the uh, programs to, to address literacy, they would be locked into place. It also meant, as a matter of just legal technicality, that the decision itself was declared moot, which meant it couldn't be cited as official precedent. And that's that's what the Republicans were afraid of. In fact, they wanted to overturn the decision so no other group of children could ever go back to court and say that this right existed. We were able to prevent that, but in doing so, because the case was settled and made moot, um, it, it is not formal precedent. I don't think, frankly, that makes much difference. The case is already being referred to all over the United States. The California court relied on it. It's being utilized in the New York case that you mentioned and other cases. And it has contributed to the conversation and and to the struggle itself. But it is a measure of just how serious the opposition is to all kids reading that that uh, that these attorney generals went to um, the, the court and said there cannot be a right for all children to learn how to read. And if there ever was a telling statement about where we are today and whether or not all uh, office holders are really committed to all children reading, I think that was it. I think it's important to make sure that our listeners understand that when Dr. Duke and Mark Rosenberg talk about laws, they're talking about anti-literacy laws that were steeped in the history. And most people don't really understand how entrenched they were. And the fact that in, in states across the South and even into the North, they opted not to educate any child so that they wouldn't have to educate Black formerly enslaved children that those were the routes that they took, that rather than educate anybody and rather than their tax dollars going in that direction, they chose this course. And so here we are reaping those benefits of those kinds of decisions that happened centuries ago. And the fact that that's why we're here in 2021 having to sue for the rights of children to get a basic education. Well, let's let's talk about... Uh, you're absolutely right, and but let's talk. Let's move on to this California case. Can you sort of lay out what the issue there was, as distinguished from the Michigan case, because it's a slightly different case. Yes, and it's a very important distinction, and it also suggests a path forward in terms of the use of the courts where the political system doesn't respect the dignity and the opportunity for these children. After the Rodriguez case that we discussed in 1973, uh, advocates in the legal system turned to state constitutions because state constitutions were more hospitable to recognizing that all children had a right to learn how to read. Well, and can I just say, there's nothing in the U.S. Constitution that mentions education, whereas every state constitution does. Exactly, uh, exactly. I mean, I will say that when the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868, no one thought you had to mention education. When, 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 that, when that amendment provided, it was a Civil War amendment, when that amendment provided for equality, the assumption was that 
all children would be treated the same when it came to the education they received. But you're exactly right. Every state constitution specifically mentions education, and many state Supreme Courts have recognized that that affords children what's called a fundamental right, a right that cannot be upset by the political system, no matter what the antipathy is towards children uh, of particular racial and economic groups. We, after the Detroit case, we we exported a lot of what um, the Detroit case had said. We went into California. California had a statewide system where 11 out of the 21 lowest performing large school districts in the United States were located in California. Stockton is the third lowest uh, uh, system when it comes to literacy. Los Angeles, San Francisco, you can name them. You can throw a dart at a map of California. And as long as you don't hit Beverly Hills or Santa Monica or Palo Alto, you're going to hit a district that is in trouble. The literacy rates in in those communities are pretty close to zero. And so we brought a statewide case and said that the sorts of literacy programs that Nell Duke talked about and that, look, as you, as, as you pointed out, teaching children how to read is not rocket science, it's reading science and we know how to do it and all children have this capacity to learn and this desire to learn. And so we said in California that the state constitution, if it meant anything when it said that education was a fundamental right, meant that all children should have access to literacy. We won that, the state opposed us initially. We won that in a trial court in California. And after that, the the case went to settlement and using the state constitution, we obtained a settlement that said two basic things. One, that um, $53 million would be utilized for the 75 lowest performing elementary schools to begin to bring in the sorts of evidence-based solid uh, literacy training program, literacy education programs with with the involvement of teachers, families, and community groups. We also took a look at what was going on with respect to discipline, because you can't learn if you're not in school. And we all know, everyone who's listening to this today knows that children of color are disproportionately suspended and disproportionately expelled. And that is a big part of why why there are children who are otherwise behind in terms of their education. And we know how racialized that process is. And the case also established a new discipline system so that the sorts of suspensions and expulsions and the disproportionate impact on communities of color would no longer take place. And that's the package that is the, um, that is the California settlement, uh, which is a, a complement to the Detroit. And one case would not have happened without the other. That's really interesting. So, Dr. Duke, can you talk about how that money can be used in ways that will get the outcome we all want, all kids learning to read, right? But I, I'm, I'm just... I'm trying to be my contrarian self, right? I I know there are people out there saying you can pour money into schools. You're not going to get any real effect. Um, it's just money down a rat hole. Um, that I'm not reflecting my own view. I'm just I'm trying to um, to elicit what it is you think the money can really be used for. Sure, and I'm, I'm glad you raised that because it is true that just throwing money at 
the issue isn't going to solve uh, things. However, it is one of the conditions that needs to be in place um, to make improvements. So I'm glad you raised that. Um, I had the opportunity with Dr. Lauren Katz uh, with an organization called 3LI and with Dr. Crystal Wise, who's at the University of Illinois, Chicago, to really dig into records um, of the experiences of specific students who are plaintiffs in the California case. And what you can see there is, is definitely where money would have been helpful when you see things like large class sizes, when you see lots of substitute teachers and teacher absences and teacher turnover, you know, one way that we can help to recruit and retain teachers is by providing, you know, a, a better salary, um, which is expensive. Um, we also saw that in many of these um, children's cases, there were not uh, interventionists or literacy specialists, reading specialists available to support children who need some extra instructional um, effort in order to help them uh, learn to read and write well. Or in some cases, there were aides like paraprofessionals providing that those supports. And it's widely understood in the education community that you actually need highly trained people working with children who are struggling with reading. You can't put that um, and paraprofessionals, there are many valuable things that paraprofessionals can do um, in the classroom, but to be responsible um, as, as the lead interventionist for children who need extra support, that doesn't make sense. So money would have been helpful there as well. Another place where you see that money um, and good thinking, you know, wise decision-making would have been helpful was in teacher professional development. Um, so for example, in the case of one school, there was one professional development set, uh, opportunity in literacy over the course of an entire school year. Now, we know um, from research that in order for um, professional development for teachers to really move the needle for children, you need more than 14 hours on any given topic. And uh, in most successful cases, it's really a combination of professional development workshop hours followed by coaching support on an ongoing basis in a job embedded way to really help teachers to um, you know, teach children uh, whatever it is that that professional development focused on. So one professional development session over the course of a year in literacy is not going to be supportive of teachers. And when you're combining that with the teacher turnover, with absence, you see, you know, you've got a lot of new teachers in these districts and they need that ongoing support. Um, Karen, sometimes people think, well, it must be the colleges of education didn't do their job. You know, if they did their job, we shouldn't need any professional learning, you know, for teachers. Um, and I try to explain that teaching literacy to a large classroom, you know, 24, 25, 26 first graders with a variety of backgrounds, with a variety of knowledge that they may they have and don't have uh, related to literacy you know, doing that is extremely complex. I've argued it's as complex as being an emergency room physician, maybe more, but um, because of histories that, that we could talk about, some of which actually Tanji's comments uh, refer to, um, we haven't invested in teaching in the same way that we have invested in the practice of medicine. So we um, really don't provide, you know, at best uh, teachers get a couple of years of undergraduate education to learn to teach all areas, all subjects, domains, you know, to manage the large classroom, all of those uh, challenges. And so um, the job embedded ongoing professional development is going to be necessary uh, unless we completely shift the way teacher preparation is done so that it looks more like 
the preparation of physicians. And I will add that physicians get ongoing professional development anyway. So there are coaches that work in hospitals, there are hospital administrators, there are study groups, there are ongoing conferences. And so, you know, it just speaks to the fact that, you know, to, to expect teachers to provide a really high quality literacy education for every child, they need a lot of support. And that support costs money. And that re- support requires wise decision making that is based on evidence from research. But it doesn't cost as much money as it costs not to educate kids. That that's the part that I think is always the revealing fact as to the as to the point that this isn't about money. Because even if you didn't give a damn about these kids, even if you only wanted to look at the economy of Detroit or the economy of California, you would say this this investment makes no sense whatsoever. Because the lack of productivity that results from children who cannot read up to their up to their capacity, what that does in terms of what's going on a state, it doesn't make any sense. I think we're about to have a crisis upon a crisis, and I think everyone knows that. Look what's happening with COVID right now. These children are going to be coming back to, to school, to school buildings, and teachers are going to, to be the, the best trained, the most committed teachers are nonetheless going to be overwhelmed by the challenges in terms of what happens when kids spend a year. And and I know you agree with this now that not just it's not just reading teaching skills, these teachers and these students and these families and these schools need mental health supports as well. The trauma that these kids are undergoing by spending a year in so-called remote learning, what that has meant, what that has meant in terms of the depression, even suicides, is extraordinary. And teachers are not equipped to address that when it comes into their cl- into their classroom. And unless this this community this country right now says we want to make sure that kids are going to be able to learn and bring in mental health professionals and the training that 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 a truly trauma sensitive environment requires we're going to have an explosion of problems that's going to make what came came before it seem awfully small by comparison i well i'm going to push back just a tiny bit tangi you and i kind of have i Maybe, maybe you want to do this pushback uh, yourself. Mark, I think you're right. I think that there's definitely this real need to understand where students and caregivers and families are relative to their uh, mental health. What we don't want to get to is this place of misplaced compassion because of it, which will exacerbate people elevating what they assume to be traumas related to extended being out of school and and supplanting one for the other, whereby they just focus only on kids' feelings, kids' feelings, kids' feelings, and they're not getting to the academics. That's going to be even more damaging. And, And teachers are not necessarily, they're not, and you're right, they're not trained for that. They're not trained to be, you know, psychologists in the classroom, but they are trained on how to embed social learning into the fabric and fiber of academic acquisition. And so that's kind of where I think some of the best kinds of training can be because it will honor 
the fact that teachers understand that kids have gone through a lot because they themselves have gone through a lot, but it will also honor the fact that they understand the importance of accelerating learning and making sure kids are that their compassion is not moving into a place of deficit and like the sort of um, a la pobrecita syndrome where they're like, oh, these poor kids, they can't learn. So we want to really walk a fine line with that. I don't know what that line is. I just know that um, we feel the misplaced compassion, you know, rearing its ugly head in lots of interesting places. Well, I strongly agree with you, and and there is a danger of pathologizing communities and saying that they're not capable of learning. At the same time, the the, the young people I've been talking to and the families I've been talking to, they, they may have spent 12 months without any technology, with as if the, the schoolhouse door had been utterly locked to them. I've talked to kids who have had literally no education whatsoever because they didn't have a computer or because they didn't have connectivity or because the the teachers were in, in situations where they could talk to kids, um, you know, maybe an hour or two a week. I talked to one superintendent last week who said he had to deliver packets to kids and that was the means of communication. It's naive to think that that doesn't have an impact in terms of so addressing it as if it is a trauma that does not it, it it's not that the kids did anything wrong it's that the, that the community and that that we as a society didn't do what we needed to do and that's the most important point with respect to trauma it's it's that it racism is a trauma inducing uh, circumstance and so is poverty. So is poverty. And that's what we're talking about. And you're right. We do far more damage if somehow we uh, have what I consider pseudo compassion. Right. But, but really what we're saying is that these kids can't learn. And it's really just the opposite. They want to learn and we're not giving them and their teachers what they need. So, so many times, Tanji and I end our conversations with they love knowing stuff. Kids love knowing stuff. They love learning. They want to know they stuff. They want to know stuff. They <laughs> want to be able to tell you the stuff they want, they know. Karen, I'd just like to to jump in to say that it's it's not only that kids love learning stuff, but that they're capable of learning stuff. And something we haven't brought up in the conversation that I think is really important to talk about are teacher expectations. There is a long history of research that goes back decades looking at what teachers expect of children based on their sociodemographic profile. And what we see in that research is consistently that teachers hold lower expectations for children who live in economic poverty and hold lower expectations for children who are Black. And what happens when we have those low expectations, and, and I want to be very clear, this is not teacher bashing here. You know, the, there's a lot of forces and messaging that go into those expectations. And of course, not all teachers hold low expectations for their children. In fact, we have a very rich body of literature, um, which Karen, you've absolutely contributed to uh, yourself on um, schools and teachers um, that do hold high expectations for children and uh, have achievement that comes along uh, with that. But, but to be clear, many, many teachers um, 
hold perhaps unconsciously in many cases, lower expectations for children of economic poverty and children of color. And those low expectations influence the way they teach. So for example, we see that teachers generally ask fewer higher order questions. Those questions that really make you think, you know, really make you dig in, you know, you can't just get the answer right there on the surface of the text. You've got to really think about it. Um, Some teachers thinking that they're doing the right thing by going, quote, back to basics, unquote, spend an inordinate amount of time on lower level skills and not enough time on higher level skills that are also necessary if you're going to be able to engage in the kinds of citizenship activities that I described. Um, So the, the teacher expectations piece is a really important one. And what I'm concerned about is that, among other things, is that that may Uh, come up against COVID in a really bad way, where now expectations are even lower and our our sense of what children are already capable of and our sense of what they're capable of learning will be further um, negatively impacted um, by people's thinking. And so um, I think it's just so important that we keep messaging that all children are full of assets. All children know things. It's not like they were, you know, at home learning nothing. They were learning something. It may not have been school stuff, but they were learning something. How can we build on that? How can we bridge that? Maybe children are more hungry to learn than they would have been. Maybe they're more eager and maybe we take advantage of that. So just um, trying to, you know, as Mark is suggesting and you and Tanji, if we just really message the need to keep a positive asset oriented view toward kids, it's going to make I think a big difference. Well, I I just want to add to this low the the question of the low expectation. It's not just teacher to student, right? It's then how schools are organized, and this gets to the the final case that you just brought last week, Mister <laughs> Mister Um and that is when you've organized around the idea that some kids are just you know. By, by dint of poverty or race or socioeconomic background or what for a while was sort of semi-politely referred to as uh, family culture or parental culture, right? Um, you've, you organize your schools in a slightly different way, in, in a very different way, not slightly. Um, you think of... S- disruptive students as the students who are harming the other kids, so you just have to get rid of them. I I had a really interesting talk once with a high school uh, principal who said, well, the typical way that you organize the uh, assistant principals is by grade level, so you put the, your newest guy, and they're almost always guys, newest guy at ninth grade, and he's responsible for getting rid of the kids who are real problems. And so by the time you've, you're you're the senior uh, administrator, you've got the easy job because you've weeded out all the uh, all the kids who you don't want. That's a that was a not a um, that was a, a very typical way to organize a school in terms of and so that leads to the discipline question, right? That leads to the suspension, the expulsion questions. You you really ride the kids who are who you think are aren't really going to do much for the school. Instead of looking at that kid and saying, "Okay, what more do we do, need to do to help this kid master what he needs to master and graduate and and become a a, 
a productive citizen. But we, we, we've allowed these low expectations not just to permeate a classroom. It's also how we organize schools in general. And, and that gets to this New York case, which you just filed last week, and I read this morning, um, which really talks about the way New York City uses its schools not to educate all kids, but to sort kids into different categories. You're gifted and talented. You're not gifted and talented. And we're going to really pour resources into you if you're gifted and talented. And like the other kids, well, um, yeah, you can come to school if you want. I mean, I'm I'm paraphrasing your lawsuit, <laughs> but was that a fair was that a fair assessment? You know, it's 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 a multi-page uh, document that's a very serious document, and I I will link to it, and I would urge listeners to read it because it's it raised my anxiety levels this morning. Well, it was intended to raise everyone's anxiety levels. The the case is. Um, brought in New York City, one of the most segregated school systems in the United States, if not the most segregated, not by accident. It seeks to achieve a constitutional right to an anti-racist education. We filed this case almost 70 years to the day that Brown versus Board of Education was filed. And that's telling in and of, it, of itself why, again, in 2021, do we have to file a lawsuit that says that a school system has to be anti-racist and that children have a right to an anti-racist education. The, the New York school system, if you had to design a caste system, this you, you could do worse than, than the coming forward with the New York school system. As you said, beginning at age four, actually beginning at age 18 months, Children start getting sorted. The, the, the city of New York, the state of New York, uses standardized tests that have no basis whatsoever in terms of demonstrating any sort of merit-based, any sort of validation. They've never been tested for not being biased to put kids on racialized pipelines. One pipeline goes to the city's most elite schools. It's Stuyvesant, for example, which is known as a specialized high school. Out of a student body of 895 students, there are seven black kids. That's not by accident. While uh, kids of color, black and brown kids, are put on a different pipeline to schools that wouldn't pass the test of Plessy versus Ferguson, schools like we were talking about in Detroit, where there are not teachers in every classroom, where the sorts of things that Nell found in California exists where kids use dilapidated school books, uh, books where the president of the United States is Bill Clinton, uh, where they can hardly hold the books together, um, where um, kids have to wait in the rain and snow to go through security um, machines in order to get in, where the schools um, um, stink of, of vermin. Um, and where they actually occupy the same buildings as the schools where the so-called gifted and talented children go, which is a euphemism for white and often upper economic class Asian, Asian students. That's a two-tier system. And that's the system that is utilized in New York. And the message is clear. There are certain kids who don't count. And we don't care whether they learn or not. And we prefer that they don't. And we don't want them part of our political process. And we don't want them in, in better circumstances. And so we attach 
stigmas to them. And they go off to schools that I, I always think that the test is easy. You don't have to look at a constitution. The question is, would you send your kids to those schools? And if the answer is no, then we know we have a constitutional and a moral problem. And that's what the New York case is all about. And it's going to be revealing as to what the state and the city of New York do, whether or not they agree that all children have an anti-racist education, which incidentally doesn't include just the schools they could go into, but whether they study curriculum that are white-centered curriculum, where the people who look like them are not part of the curriculum, where they are only talked about as victims, but as, as Nell was saying earlier, not an asset base, not looking at what these kids, these families, these communities are all about, where they know that where they don't see teachers of color. I I I talked to one kid after another for over seven months who never saw a teacher of color in their classroom, an entire school career like that, where kids were told, one kid was told, um, well, not one kid, one classroom, for example, was told by a teacher, um, go put on the board the pros and cons of slaveries. A black a black kid was asked to do that, where black kids were, were told um, that they had to say the N-word out loud, though they objected, where one kid who got into Yale was told by their teacher, yeah, but you could still end up in jail. That's a system, that's a system that is a racialized system, that is a caste system, and that's what New York City is about. And tragically, there are other communities like that throughout this country, but nothing like, like New York City. And that's why we're taking a stand here on behalf of those community groups to say that an anti-racist education is a constitutional right that flows from what a sound and basic education is under the New York Constitution. And Nell, can I ask you to opine on the reading instruction in New York City, which um, when I think about it, it blows the top of my head off. Yeah, I I think uh, one of the reasons that this New York City case is is so compelling is because it's a single school district, right? New York City is one school district. Right, it's right. one city. It's one huge. Right. It's big, it's right, but it is one district. But it's still and one. So even That's within right. a district, we're seeing these incredible discrepancies in the quality of the education being provided and uh, discrepancies, again, that are not random, but that are like all the other ones we've been talking about socio-demographically um, determined. But um, if I can step back for a minute, just to say that from one district to the next, we also see these kinds of discrepancies. And I think in some ways we take them for granted, you know, that th this is a community where I would not send my kids to school. This is a community where I would send my kids to school, right? This kind of um, thinking. And, and um, more than two decades ago now, I published a study in which in the greater Boston area, which is a, a very economically and racially segregated uh, part of the country as well. I went into 10 first grade classrooms um, many times over the course of the year in very wealthy school districts and then 10 in very high poverty school districts. And I tracked details of the literacy instruction being provided. So what, what were people doing in, in these first grade classrooms um, to teach children to read? And um, the results, even for someone who had read a lot about the role of schooling in social reproduction were really striking. Um, just 
subtle things that you, you wouldn't think of. I mean, you would think that there were differences in the number of books available to children. And that's exactly right. So in the wealthy school districts, there were many more books in the classrooms. The books were newer. The books were more diverse. Um, and people, I think, would expect that, unfortunately. Um, but then there were other things like children in the wealthy school districts more often had an opportunity to write a text that would have an audience other than just their teacher. It would have an, an audience of, you know, someone in the community or a politician or, you know, someone they were trying to influence to think about something differently. The first graders in the high poverty school districts were not typically given an opportunity to write for anyone other than at best the teacher. And uh, kids in the wealthier school districts had more opportunity to engage in reading and writing in content learning. You know, what you were talking about earlier, learning stuff, you know, in the context of science, in the context of social studies, in the higher poverty school district, there wasn't much science and social studies instruction happening of any kind. And there certainly were fewer opportunities for kids to engage in reading and writing in science and social studies. So I say all of this um, just to, to say that there are so many ways, both predictable and maybe not so predictable, or at least not so visible to people, um, that our literacy instruction can differ in quality. Um, I think right now people go off into thinking about phonics instruction and, and differences in quality of that, and that's certainly important, but that is one of many aspects of literacy education where we may see differences. Um, I mentioned higher order questions earlier. There's just so many ways in which um, we can provide a better or a worse literacy education for children. And unfortunately, uh, too often it's a worse education for children and for the children who we have continued to disenfranchise in so many other ways in our nation's history. Which means I think also that, you know, going back to some of the earliest questions we've had this afternoon, you know, education, public education was the great innovation supposedly, and it was to be the great equalizer. And the reality is in America, it's the great unequalizer. It is the strategy and the methodology for separating and for saying that certain groups will be treated as if they are superior to others, which means in the end, I think this is all our fight. You can't depend on lawsuits. Um, you can't depend on individuals like Nell and her uh, counterparts to do this work. You can't depend on teachers. You can't even depend on the families and the communities to carry all this by themselves. If we really care about kids, and if we really say that that we're not a society that hates certain children and don't care, doesn't care for children, it's all our fight. And unless all of us would say that we are content sending our kids to any school not just certain schools that we pay lots of money to take advanced play, but take uh, uh, prep courses, which is what goes on in New York, for example. If we can't say that we are we're content to send our our kids to any school in this country, then something is is very wrong, and it's really all of our fight. Well, and I think what both of you are talking about is something I think is so important, which is um, that public schools and democracy are really, uh, if they're not exactly the same thing, they are so intertwined as to be very uh, uh, de dependent on each other. If, uh, actually I wrote this, I have a book coming out in, in April and wh what I say is, if we allow one to wither, the other will will wither as well. They, they are so intertwined and I, 
I think you guys have really made that clear in a way that I hope, um, you know, will resonate with a lot of people out there. Um, if we're to be a democratic country, we must have public schools. We ha- must have really good public schools, not, not you know, some good schools and some crappy schools. That's, that's not democracy. Democracy requires good schools for all kids. Um, and, and that will be key to whether we have active, engaged citizens who can help strengthen and, and maintain, well, strengthen and establish uh, democracy. Mm. Yeah, how would we get there? Right? How would we actually get to that place where we have that high quality education for all, for, for every student? Because I think we try to sort of suck them up underneath the all and we inevitably leave people out of the all. I, mean, I think that's a really important question. And although I uh, would be far from claiming that our medical system is corrupt, uh, is uh, you know highly effective, or that our medical system um, really demonstrates equity, I think that there is a clue that we can take um, from uh, medicine, and that is this notion of a minimum standard of care. So in, in medicine, there are these practice guides, there are documents that establish what are minimum expectations for a physician. So if someone walks into the office with diabetes, there are certain things that you're expected to do as a physician. And if you don't do those, you really open yourself up to malpractice. And one of our challenges, I think, in education is that we have not established a national minimum standard of care in education. So it seems apparently equally okay to have 33 first graders in a classroom as to have 18 first graders in a classroom. Or it seems that it's equally okay to have some children who have a handful of books in their classroom and other children who have hundreds of books in their classroom. Or some children who have the opportunity to read about people who look like them and who have cultural backgrounds that have something in common with them and for other children to not have that opportunity. Right now, that's the impression you would get looking across our national literacy education landscape. So I think establishing some minimum standards of care, uh, I hope not through the courts. I hope we get out ahead of this. You know, it would be a tedious process to establish all of these minimums through the courts. But to say, for example, if you are in the primary grades in this country, someone should be reading to you in school every day. That shouldn't be a thing that some children get and other kids don't get. Every kid should be read to every day. We have a huge volume of research evidence that suggests that reading aloud to children is really supportive of their development. We should have a rule that every kid gets to read books with people who look like them and people who share cultural backgrounds and similarities with them. That should just be a minimum that everyone agrees to. Every classroom in the primary grade should attend to children's ability to really learn the written code and apply that learning to be able to read and write words. Every kid, not just some kids, Um, and so on. And so I do think that an important way that many of your listeners can participate in this fight is through um, helping to establish a minimum standard of care that we agree to nationally and that we enact in every school building in this country. The IES puts out practice guides that are just rich syntheses of what we know, what like is generally known and understood from research. They're, they're not a lot of them. They don't say a lot of things, but what they say, they say with some authority, right? 
How many teachers even know they exist? Absolutely. I'm glad you brought up the What Works Clearinghouse practice guides. Um, I use them often and refer teachers to them often. I think you're right that many people don't know that they exist. And they're developed by panels of experts, both practitioners and researchers working together, reviewing the evidence, thinking about um, what's going to serve children best in any particular area or, or youth best in every particular area, and then codifying those in these practice guides. And they are a good step toward that minimum standard of care. There are also a lot of things they don't address. Um, and some work we've done in, in Michigan that you can find at literacyessentials.org. We've drawn on those practice guides, but we've tried to go beyond to list other important um, criteria. And then there are the, the criteria, the minimum standard of care that goes beyond just literacy, things like class size, things like culture responsive pedagogy, things like, um, as Mark was talking about earlier, appropriate discipline practices um, and avoiding inappropriate and racialized discipline practices and so on. You know, all of those, codifying all of that um, will really, I think, serve our country well to make sure we really do get to where all children get a high quality education. Um, but I, I was just curious, uh, Mark, like, what drives you? No, I, I, um, I, I get asked that a lot. You know, for me, I mean, I love my life. And, and um, it's not hard to be driven to do this. I, you know, I spent last week talking to students in, in New York City and in Boston and in California about the issues that we're discussing. And they're extraordinary young people. I, had a, I sent a book, um, usually after I talk with a student, I'll, I'll, if, the, if the student would like, I send them a book. And so um, I sent this um, young person in New York City. She's her background is Puerto Rican. We were talking, and she said, and I asked her what book she would like. She said, well, she had heard about Justice Sotomayor, and so I sent her um, Justice Sotomayor's autobiography. And I spent a couple hours this weekend talking with her because um, she had some questions about it, and to hear her excitement and to hear her enthusiasm. And to hear her say, that's me, that's who I am. I mean, what better way is there to spend a life than to be able to have conversations like that? And, um, you know, I think of myself as a good dad and, and nothing's more important to me than that. And a lot of that is being able to share those sorts of experiences with my, my, my kids. Not that they should do what I'm doing by any stretch, but that they should see what joy you have in life, being invited into communities like that and being able to have conversations like that. So it, it doesn't take anything to get me excited about what I do. I, I, I can't imagine doing anything else and feel I'm the most fortunate person on the planet to be able to be invited in to be some small part of these struggles. Okay, well, listen, thank you so much. I, you know, we really are up against the hour. So, um, and, and I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're both really busy. So thank you so much. And that wraps up this episode of the Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times podcast of the Education Trust. If you're interested in learning more about the work of Mark Rosenbaum and Nell Duke, we have linked to some of it in our show notes, as well as the briefs and the lawsuits. This is the second 
of a series of conversations we will be having about reading instruction this spring. The first, which I hope you'll listen to, was a conversation with Alfred Tatum. Next week, we'll start looking more closely at the efforts by the Council of Chief State School Officers. Reading instruction is a hot topic, and I hope at the end of our series, all our listeners will have a better understanding of why it's such a hot topic and some of the ways educators can move forward so that all our children not only learn to read, but learn to be engaged citizens who help shape our democracy. Another resource is the second season of Extraordinary Districts, which profiles three districts and talks a lot about the reading instruction they are doing. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth. See you next time.